haven't yet gotten your comps to the stage director, do so right now. Good evening, everyone. This is Minutes to Curtain by Miscreant Theater Collective. That's right, it's MTC by MTC. I am Andrew Rogers, the executive swashbuckler of the Miscreant Theater Collective, and I am joined, as always, <gasps> villain, I have done thy mother. Dylan McDonald, everybody. Dylan, how are you doing? Did you say villain or Dylan? Is that important? I think based on the thing you said next. (laughs) Don't worry. I respect your mother. I I bought her dinner and everything. Why are you buying dinner from my mom? She should be paying is what you're saying? (laughs) No, from. Oh, oh, no. (laughs) No, I meant did you say villain McDonald? Is that the Fuck, role that, that would have been, that like. been better? Can we take it back? If you... Hi, no, everyone. Welcome to Miss Grand Theater Collective. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> you are welcome. Uh, so today we are going to be discussing uh, the play Hangman by Martin McDonough. Don't want to be rude, but uh, I actually just got a birthday present. It was a really late one or really early one. Um, someone got me a really nice bundle of rope. Uh, so I am, I have been practicing my knots and I'm learning a couple of them. I also got a book of knots for my, actually it was Christmas, but it worked out because I got them at the same time. Um, so I'm going to be practicing my knots uh, while you give us the summary. This so this week. is like boutique craft rope, right? Oh yeah. Like Locally this sourced. Is, this, this is the kind Hands you see fun. in those videos that you can't share at work anymore, Dylan. That's leather. That's not rope. Rope can be involved. That's right. I'm trying to introduce you slowly into the glories of bondage, and you're being resistant, and that's fine. But anyway, uh, I've picked out the first three knots that I'm going to try. I'm going to try and work on my bowline because that one is definitely wanting. My reef knot is is next up. But after that, I'm going to work on my double lutz. Uh, which I hear is a really good, very popular. Uh, it's actually an Olympic knot. So, uh, it, oh wow, you've moved on from amateur already after three um, knots. I mean, aim for the top it's is two knots. You know, once I get to the top, uh, maybe my progress can go over a, a rafter and then come back down. Toward, never mind. Anyway, so Dylan, what happens in Hangmen by Martin McDonough? Jokes about parabolas, people. <laughs> So Hangman by Martin McDonough is, shockingly, about a couple of hangmen. Oh, and like they're they're dating? No, 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 they're not a hangman couple. They're it's it it involves some men who do some hanging, or oh. at least did some hanging. Oh, cool. Okay. So the play starts with a pretty short scene where we're introduced to Harry, who's going to be one of our main characters, and his current hanging assistant named Sid as well as a man named Hennessy. You want to remember all three of these men, although one of them won't be coming back. So this scene is all about the hanging of this man named Hennessy. And quick scene, the hanging is achieved. Cool. And that scene ends pretty quickly, and we jump forward a couple years later to where Harry now owns a bar. And... I believe this is the day that hanging has now become officially abolished. There have been no hangings as capital punishment for a couple of years now, but now it's been made official. There is no more need for hangmen. Even just to, like, chill? Just to hang out? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well joked. So we meet Harry and his group of cronies, his little barflies that seem to come in every day. Uh, and he's he's pouring pints and sort of talking about the good old days, shooting the shit. You can tell that he's sort of the star of the show, you know, all day, every day in his pub. And these three guys are always just hanging out, just sort of fulfilling Harry's wish to be loved and have power and, and sort of be his cronies. They're referred to as cronies throughout the show. Uh, but they're also talking to this reporter who's trying to get a quote from Harry as the second best hangman in England about how he feels about the abolition. And everybody's throwing their two cents in, and Harry is basically saying, you know, I have too much decorum. I always keep my own counsel. I'm not going to give you any great quotes. Well, by the end of the scene, he's going to go upstairs and give it a pretty in-depth interview to this reporter. But first we have to meet Shirley, who is Harry's kind of mopey daughter, and a man who goes by the name Mooney, who seems to be a stranger in the pub and has come in to get a couple of drinks, but he's also come to inquire about a room that they used to rent out uh, and haven't for a while, but it looks like they're going to again. 
So there's some conversation back and forth between these men, and eventually the scene ends, and Harry goes upstairs to give his news interview. We learn a, a few things about Mooney. He seems to be a nice enough guy. Uh, you know, he's from closer to London, further down south, but he's he more or less ingratiates himself to both Shirley and Alice, who is Harry's wife, mm-hmm. and says, you know, he leaves the room with Alice to go talk about the, the scenarios, get some references. He leaves, and then we sort of jump directly to the interview that Harry gives. Mm-hmm. So Harry spends a lot of the interview by claiming that he doesn't want to say anything too specific. He doesn't want to get into the details. That those are things that are sacrosanct, and mm-hmm. that word comes up a lot. He's He's got too much decorum to talk about things like how many men he's hanged or how he might truly feel about the abolition of hanging as capital punishment. And yet, with just the most gentle of prodding, suddenly he has all of these opinions and is more than happy to share them. Mm-hmm. So the the best example is that he says, I don't want to talk about numbers, but let me tell you about this number one, Mr. Pierre Pont. If he hadn't been getting all these you know, extra free Germans to hang, and you know how easy they are to hang, and, and also, you know, I never did any of the injustice ones. All of these people that people are talking about, like having been hung unjustly, hanged unjustly, and that'll be important later. Yeah, no, I'm the yeah. one who's unjustly hung. <laughs> ah! <laughs> And basically making the argument that he was just as good a hangman as Pierre Pont, if you exclude all of these external variables. And and there's a sense that Harry thought that he took more pride in the job, and he did it better. But he also talks about, well, I don't want to talk about the actual numbers of people that I hanged. But then, like, three sentences later... He's giving a specific number because he couldn't let the reporter undervalue it. He wouldn't want him to give the impression that he had hanged fewer than 200 men because it was was between 200 and 300, but more like 238. Hmm. More like specifically 238. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, it's a nice round number, that one. Yeah, but if you subtract all the Germans that Pierpont hanged, you know, we'd be pretty close. So, yeah. so he gives this interview and seems pretty happy about it. And to be honest, he will never not seem pretty happy about it. And so that scene ends. We move into the next day where everybody is now reading the interview. Alice picks up the paper and sort of mumbles to herself aloud to the audience. You're making a fool of yourself by being so honest and so brash about all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Speaking um, of being honest, by the way, uh, I want to show you this this knot I just did. I actually managed to do a triple Lindy. I I I, I mean, look how pretty the, they say that only one person can ever do a triple Lindy, and I've I've managed to do it here. It looks like a Lindy hop. So just if you, oh shit, if you right. pull that one string right there. Oh oh well. Yeah, that now it's just rope again. All right. Anyway, continue. that's all right. Try again. I will throw some more rope. I will. <laughs> Please carry on. <laughs> I, I intend to. <laughs> so it's the next day, and again at at the bar, Harry with his crony is talking about how great the interview was and how proud Harry is of it, and and so on and so forth. Mooney runs into the bar. It's like nine a.m. with all these references for Alice saying. Hey, I'm here and I've got these references. And she says something to the effect of, didn't we talk about this afternoon? Or something mm-hmm. like that. And he said, well, no, I don't think we chose a time, but I'm here really early and doesn't that show that I'm really interested? So he gives the references to Alice and she goes upstairs to sort of check on them. In the meantime, he starts chatting up Shirley. He says some nice things about her. He says some weird backhanded things about her. He seems to really enjoy these loquacious, verbose conversations where he can just make shit up, pull shit out of his ass and make Shirley happy. But he says that he thinks she's nice. And and Shirley's been recently informed about one of her friends who has been sent to a mental institution. And they make a plan to, to meet together. And Mooney is going to drive her to this mental institution so she can visit her friend and find out what's going on. Hmm. So Shirley runs off about the time Alice comes down. And... Alice mentions, like, oh, I'm sorry, it took me so long to get dressed and get ready. And I phoned some of your references, and none of them picked up. Hmm. And Mooney loses his shit. He's oh. like, how dare you call these people behind my back? What are you thinking? Like, with all of the irony of, like, you gave me these references with phone numbers specifically so I could call them and check in on you. Yeah. And he basically says, I don't even think I want the room anymore. And he grabs the references, and he storms out. And Alice is left there being like, what the fuck? 
what just happened? Mm-hmm. What is going on here? And that scene ends, seems like the morning shift ends, and then the next scene we see is in the afternoon, and it's stormy, and Alice and Harry haven't seen Shirley in a while. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of off to the side and not really being brought up yet. But so it's, again, the same men in the same bar talking shit, you know, talking about the interview. And, and then Sid comes back into the picture. He, he walks into the bar, sort of introduces himself to the boys and talks to Harry and tells him that he's been thinking about the Hennessy hanging from that first scene and has been convinced by a number of means that they hanged the wrong man. Hmm. And that he's met a man recently who seems to know about another attack on another woman. Because Hennessy was hanged for murdering a woman. Mm -hmm. And that there was another murder the following year on that same anniversary. And that this man he met who knew so much about it said he was coming up this direction. And today is another anniversary of that Hennessy, quote unquote, murder. Mm -hmm. And basically Sid just came by to warn him. And this sets Harry off because now he's starting to worry about where Shirley is. Sure. Lee. Shirley. Shirley he's worried. Indeed. Shirley he's worried for Shirley. Absolutely. Correctly. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And well, bef- by the way, uh, I last couple minutes I've been working on this monkey fist. You like my monkey fist? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't say that it looks like a monkey fist, but, you know... Orion doesn't look like Orion in the stars either, so... That, yeah, that's true. And, I mean... I mean, if you want to be an abstract naughtist, more power to it you. It wasn't supposed to be dirty. It was supposed to be naughty, but I'll work on it yeah, next Nautically time. abstract. All right, I'll stop fisting. Go ahead. So anyways, before Sid leaves, we do learn a little bit about their relationship and that what happened to Sid was that he was summarily dismissed from the hanging squad one day for making a comment about a man they'd recently hanged. And the comment was essentially about the absolutely massive length and girth of the man's dick. Oh, so it's really a tribute to Harry, then, that the hanged man was well hung? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Both hanged and hung. Excellent. Quite well. Excellent. Quite efficiently and proficiently. I mean, that's the American dream. (laughs) Does not take place in America. Shit! Well, we had to come from somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fair. So, so at any rate, Sid exits the bar, and Harry is left sort of wondering about, where is Shirley? I know this Mooney dude. He's a weird motherfucker. Is this the guy you're talking about? We jump to the next scene, and it's Sid walking down the street in the rain, and he sees Mooney in a pub. Mm-hmm. And he jumps in, and a lot is revealed in this conversation. It turns out Sid has been conspiring with Mooney, on some sort of shadowy plan to ruin Harry's reputation. It seems to imply all of the information that Sid just provided about the Hennessy hanging and the attacks thereafter, and definitely involves Mooney in some way. And then Mooney reveals that he did indeed meet up with Shirley and that he's got her tied up in a garage somewhere in Formby on the seaside. And that now he is concerned that his attempts to appear menacing early in the play combined with the information that Sid gave and the implication that Mooney was the man in that story has now made Mooney seem far too menacing. Mm -hmm. Or too creepy. But he doesn't like the word creepy, so we'll go menacing. Okay. And then Mooney lays in to Sid a little bit, talking about his lack of intelligence. This is not the first time we've heard this about Sid. But basically goes on to say, "You've, you've cocked this up. And I'm going to have to go fix it. And I'm not totally sure how, but you little piece of shit, we're still going to make this work. And so we don't know much about their motivations, but we know they were in on it. And we know that Shirley is in danger. We know that Shirley is in danger. We know this. Cut to the next scene. Mm -hmm. And we're back in Harry's bar talking shit to his cronies. Now, one of the police officers has come in to share that they're not totally sure where Shirley is. They even went down to the insane asylum where we thought earlier she was going. They didn't find her. They can't figure out where Shirley is. So there's this sort of background horror waiting to spring on us. But as we talk and talk, suddenly Mooney comes in the bar and Mooney is fucking riding high, arrogant as hell, talking shit to everybody, including the police officer. And 
basically implying that he knows that Harry and Alice suspect something. And he just eggs him on and he prods and he pokes until before you know it, Harry has the whole band of guys stringing this man up to hang him. Oh, shit. They, they throw a rope over the, the bar. They put him on a chair. Mm-hmm. And they even pull the chair away a couple of times as a way of sort of torturing him into what do you know? What do you think you know? Sid comes in and he's trying to play both sides still. He's trying not to make it seem like he knows anything about what's going on. Mm -hmm. But then he's so bad at lying that he basically says, wait, ask him about a garage in Formby. Like Mm -hmm. basically says, ask him about exactly where this guy told me she is, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, Objection, your honor, leading the witness. Exactly. And... As they're working on this, there's a pounding at the door, and we recognize that it is Pierre Pont. Really? The number one hangman in the UK. Yeah. Oh, really quick, before you get to this, I just made this little knot. I think it looks like a giraffe for you. I, I made it for you. I was thinking about you. It looks like, looks a, like gir- a weasel. A weasel? Oh, yeah, sh- turn it to your side. Fuck, I'm on the wrong page of this book. <sighs> All right, never mind. Yeah, the weasel knots. Those will get you every time. I worry about my weasel knot. I worry I worry not about your weasel. <laughs> All right, so, so, go, go ahead. So Pierre Pont comes in basically to pontificate over the bullshit that was just... I'm sorry, Pierre Pontificate? Pierre Pontificate. <laughs> yes, sir. That's better than it deserves. Pontificating, bloviating, yes. if you will, over the article that was just published in the paper. Yeah. And basically just stopped in to say, Harry, I see what you're doing. Fucking stop it. We're not even, we were never in competition, but now neither of us are even hangmen. So just, I don't want to hear about this anymore. And as he is strutting about the room, chewing the scenery, owning everybody, uh, they have hidden Mooney just off stage mm-hmm. and they couldn't get the rope off of him around him and at some point the chair falls and so Mooney during this is just being hanged to death mm-hmm. just off stage cool and by the time Pierre Pont leaves Mooney is dead oh no so they start trying to think of what to do with the body how do we do this and then Shirley busts in <clears throat> and Shirley explains that she went out with Mooney And he drove her to the insane asylum, and it was closed. So then he took her to the beach and did some nice things with her, said some nice things about her. Like you do on the beach. Like you do. And then left her at a bus station, said, I'll come back later. And four hours later, when he hadn't arrived, she just walked home. And now she's just gotten home. That's also my move, for the record, is, oh, I'm going to leave you at a bus station, chill here for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think we read a play about that recently it was called bus station same thing yeah bus station (laughs) so anyways the play ends with us realizing that shirley was never in any real danger that mooney was entirely innocent and was egging the guys on in the bar for sort of an unknown reason but that everything's fine and that even shirley's like oh i i think i really like him i want to see him again do you think he still likes me and she gets led upstairs to talk about the birds and the bees, because we're pretty sure she just lost her virginity. And we're left with the men in the bar just sort of casually trying to figure out what to do with this dead body who has been hanged two years after the last official hanging in the UK. And the play's over. Cool. Yeah. Well. Very I, fun. Lighthearted. I, thank you so much for that summary. Delightful as always. I found this to be kind of a difficult and unsettling play to read. I mean, as well as it was written... A lot of the themes, a lot of even the the dark humor that's in this was almost overwhelming at points and definitely has left me. Well, so my question is, the description you just gave, was that was that about any specific Martin McDonough play? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that. Uh this this play is vintage McDonough. Yeah. Uh, and it surprises me not at all to know that this is something that he tried to write earlier in his career. And he ended up kicking it around for something like 10 to 14 years. Oh, wow. Just trying to put it together and get the thoughts right. And, uh, I mean, this play was supposed to premiere on Broadway 
right as everything got shut down due, due to the pandemic. This is the Athena of McDonough plays. It's fully formed right out of his skull and ready to beat you over the fucking head with it. And yet at the same time, the ambiguity of it is extraordinarily unsettling. And I, I've been arguing with you about this play for three days now. That's true. <laughs> so clearly, this was written to unsettle people, to cause conversation, to force people to confront certain things that they assume about societies. Yeah, in in like the most Brechtian fashion, the best McDonough is is the stuff that can be both devastating and thought provoking in ways that you don't expect. And what I think about this play is. I I know McDonough more as a film writer. I've seen a lot of his movies. Seven Psychopaths is one of my favorite movies. And I think that he is really good at writing both funny and complicated, but clearly villainous villains. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the plays where who the villain was kind of came out of nowhere. Is he, he is so good at manipulating that human emotion that there is not a bone in your body halfway through the play that doesn't think that Mooney has fucked off and killed Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> as, as some sort of sadistic revenge for something that Harry and or Sid did to him in the past. I mean, you you pair that down and he is every Marvel movie's villain. <laughs> you did something that fucked my life up and so now I have this long and twisting plot yeah. to destroy your life. And at the end of it, we find out that that was both true and false is that he didn't actually do anything to Sherry, but he did everything in his power to ruin Harry to, and to at least make them believe that he had harmed Shirley. I said, Sherry, didn't I? You said Sherry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Surely it's fine. So when we read this with the book club, uh, I was reading the stage directions, and being assigned that job is sometimes hit or miss in a reading. Often a thankless job, not always an interesting. It's not a character. It's not, but it can be a character, which is what McDonough does so fucking well in this in this play. Uh, and really, if if you ever get the chance to see this play live, absolutely go and do it. But I would recommend that you read it regardless, because McDonough somehow starts writing about halfway through the first act starts writing the stage directions in poetry. I swear to God, the pub suddenly goes silent and Harry stops what he's doing to stare. Harry finds a freshly poured pint. She's gone. Shirley shyly collects glasses, etc. Tries to make herself small. She continues the count, ruling the first one out. She goes to pour a Guinness. She smiles and pours a mild. <laughs> he writes it so beautifully and makes me think that he writes it almost the way that the rest of us hear a stereotypical Irish dialect. Just so sing song all the time. He speaks in music, even with such a dark subject matter. And it's beautiful, goddammit! I regret that. Aye. So, before we discuss anything else, I had to point out just the beauty in the writing. The way it jumps out at me from the page. Before we even get into any of the topic and, and how much fun it would be to be an actor in this show. And how it's all about the actor choices that you make. The words chosen are Gorgeous. Yeah, but I think that that is a really good compliment because, yeah, the actors are going to take the characters, and obviously you want the dialogue to be written well, and sure. and depending on the side we're going for, sometimes very poetically. But I think that it takes a practiced hand to then say, "Well, I want to, I want to make something fun just for the actors as they learn this play," because not being an actor, I assume. You gotta reread this shit an awful lot. Yeah, lots you, of times. Yeah, in order to memorize something, you're going over it again and again and again. And to me, if there's a rhythm and a rhyme yeah. to all of it, it's easier to remember. 
Yeah. It's it's like a mnemonic. So so you take that, it makes sense in dialogue, but even if you want to remember this is what I'm supposed to do and this is how I'm supposed to act, if you can memorize the stage direction because it is musical and pleasing to the ear and therefore it becomes an earworm. Yeah. It's it's or amazing. An ear weasel. An ear we thank you. I you did like the knot, didn't you? <laughs> I did not. Oh god. So this is a weird couch gag we've built. This is a really weird, yeah. <laughs> but but you're right. I I think reading this play and also having read some other McDonough, it's clear why actors love doing McDonough plays and why he's so good in film too, because he weaves that all together. Basically, what I'm saying is that this play has rhythm. This play has music. This play has your man. And who could ask for anything more? So who's your man? Well, I want to talk about Harry because he is sort of the hero of the play. And yet he is kind of the villain. He clearly is not a good guy. But uh, more than anything, I'd like to talk. Actually, I'd like to ask you, what does Harry want in this play? He essentially wants to be a king of the small parcel of land he, he surveys. Example number one, he owns this bar. He's got this set of regulars who generally agree with him on everything. And when they don't, even to the smallest thing of like, at some point, I think Bill says, oh, I'll have a whiskey. And Harry turns to him and says, you'll have a pint. Because they're all getting pints. And they're you'll all be happy pints. about it. Yeah. And of course, Harry's really not happy when Mooney comes in and you know goes and sits at one of the tables instead of at the bar. And even orders his next drink from the table instead of doing what he's supposed to do in this bar, which is come up to the bar, engage in the conversation, and ask for his pint or whatever he wants to drink, Mm -hmm. is Harry wants to be in full control. And so number two, Harry really wanted to be perceived of as affluent and upper class as a hangman. He wore dicky bows. He wears a bow tie and a suit to all of his hangings because this is an upscale affair and he is an upscale man but he's still just killing people right for the state and so it to me that's the number one thing that harry wants is that he wants to have that respect or the illusion of sophistication but he doesn't want to have to work at it yeah why would you yeah i I would love to just be born at the top of a mountain and claim i climbed it (laughs) he desperately wants to be the number one hangman and wanted to be at the time when that was still a thing you could aspire to but he didn't want to do any of the work you know when they started hanging germans during the war and then also at nuremberg that he claims that first week you know the lie he told everybody else was that his wife wasn't feeling very well but what it actually was was he was running a bookies and it was grand national week and he needed to be taking bets yeah he didn't need to be doing that he had a legitimate job but in his mind he ought to be afforded the luxury of doing both he should yeah. be able to take bets on races and then saunter back to the gallows and hang whatever Nazis would allow him to them catch up mm-hmm. with Pierpont. Whereas Pierpont was just hanging anybody he could get his hands on. Right. Legally. Le- legally and with the authority of the crown. Uh, we can't really talk about Harry without mentioning that he is seen as a northerner. So just by his birthright, in a, a lot of ways, is seen as the, a second-class citizen, or at least secondary to Pierre Pont. As lower class, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so I agree that it does seem like he wants all the glory and all the prestige without having to achieve it, which makes his excuses much, much worse. Um, like, the, the Grand National thing, he lied to everyone saying his wife was in a bad way, which I think we could have a discussion about what that was supposed to mean, but it's refuted by Alice later on, so it doesn't even really matter it was a lie but also even with that excuse of comparing himself to Pierpont it's such a bad excuse that it beggars belief we haven't really gotten into this but a lot of these characters were based on real people Pierpont was a real guy he was actually like well known as the the number one hangman they said that he would he would watch his soon-to-be victims through a peephole in their cell for hours because then he could go and pick the exact right length of rope 
to put around their neck so that their necks would snap. So like Pierpont was obsessed with this and more to the point of this play, Pierpont's total body count at the end of this is estimated to be between six to 800 people that he hanged throughout his career. So unless he hung an additional two to 400 Germans, his body count was always above and beyond what Harry could have hoped to achieve. So Harry's excuses are threadbare at their best. And at their worst, he's an imposter. He's a liar. He is a braggart with no reason to be so. Right. But I think an interesting part of that is that with him being objectively number two mm -hmm. he gets to deny responsibility for all of the public hangings that the culture now deems as being miscarriages of justice but what that reminds me of is the fact that in the first scene with hennessy harry is going on and on about he's not the one who's hanging hennessy it's the courts that are doing it he's just an instrument in other words he was just following orders. And yeah, where have we heard that before? Gee, I wonder maybe where Pierpont was delivering justice to the Germans who said the same thing. It's the same side of the same coin. Is yeah. that is that Harry has all of these reasons why he's actually great. Mm -hmm. And every reason you have for him not to be great, there's actually a good reason for that too. Absolutely. So this is what McDonough does really well, is he built in the ambiguity even in the main character of taking a man who claims justice and that things are sacrosanct. And by the end of the play, he's a criminal. He's possibly a murderer. His views of justice are hollow and he can't really hide behind that illusion anymore. Although since he's just in his own kingdom with his cronies, he'll get away with it for at least a little bit more time. And actually this brings me to what I think might be our, Inappropriate reference of the week. Mom, God, get a room. <laughs> so when you and I were in psychology class in high school, yes. we learned about a particular theory of mind called the fundamental attribution error. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this has any bearing on what you guys find interesting about this play, but the whole point about this thing is that everybody from their own perspective thinks that they have unique and calculated and very considered opinions, mm -hmm. but that everybody around them is just a pattern waiting to be found. If Andy yes. leaves the house to buy groceries, I do occasionally. it's because he always gets groceries on that day, or he always gets groceries on this schedule. Whereas if I leave the house to get groceries, it's because I genuinely need them. I, I've thought about what I need to get and where I need to go. And so I think about this when it comes to Harry in that, well, Harry has all of these great reasons for why he does or doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Why he hanged the people that he did, why he owns this pub, why he has these opinions. Whereas his view of Pierpont is that, well, Pierpont will just do whatever he decides to do. Pierpont will just hang anybody. Yeah. He has no morals. He has no belief at all. Pierpont is essentially a caricature of a human being and essentially is played like a character in yeah. this in this play as well. Uh, so that's just kind of a fun psychological game to play is how much of this is just Harry projecting his assumed patterns onto That's, the people around him versus legitimate consideration of what's going on. And I love this because it plays out in a lot of different ways with Harry. I mean, in our discussion after we read this with the book club, we talked about how if you train a killer, they're gonna expect to continue to be a killer. So in his patterns with Mooney and his assumptions with Mooney's intent, he's flashing back to his level of training and assuming that this is a bad person who needs to be hanged. Right, he sees in Mooney the same kind of person that needed to be executed Dozens to hundreds of times before. Yes, absolutely. So speaking of Mooney, God, this is the part that just got me upset and that we've been arguing about for days. Yeah, I don't think that this podcast is going to help. No, it probably won't, but it will at least let me get this off my fucking chest. He ends up dead. So either he planned to die or 
things got out of control for him. Or not. Maybe there's a third or a fourth or a fifth option here because it's so infuriating to be presented with a person that you think is the villain. And then at the very end, they're innocent and may have been creepy or menacing, whichever one you want to do. Creepassing. Creepassing. <laughs> very crepuscular of you. Um, I don't even know what that word means. It's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> So, what does Mooney want? I think it's intentionally ambiguous. I think that the best thing we can do is maybe step through the different thought processes that I had. Mm -hmm. Maybe the most tangible thing we can hold on to is that Mooney seems to want revenge. As far as Sid knows, they both want revenge on Harry. I think it's pretty clear that Mooney also wants some level of revenge on Sid. And maybe even some level of revenge on the entire system which has been perpetrating these hangings. Yeah. So so at the very least, we know that Mooney wants to make Harry and probably Sid suffer in some way. In some way. He has devised this plan to get Sid to go back to Harry. And he's already spun this web for Sid. We don't know exactly how much of what Sid relayed to Harry came from Sid's imagination versus what Mooney told him. Right. But we know that there's some level of story there. At the very least, Mooney and Sid came up with this story to prove to Harry that he had hanged an innocent man. Sure. Mooney seems to continue to carry that out in more aggressive steps every time we see him. Yeah. He spends so much time at, at the beginning trying to make friends even as he seems to intentionally be offensive. One of the first things that he does is laugh at what he claims to be a picture of a funny black man in the paper. When he's talking with Shirley, he mentions a friend that was a Jew but didn't look like one. He seems like he's going out of his way to make people uncomfortable and to to present every stereotype for an objectionable person that you could come up with. To me, Mooney is the type of person who thinks he can do and say whatever the fuck he wants and get away with it because he is so much smarter and so charming that everybody will simply fall into place like dominoes. And I would, I would say that I think Mooney just overestimates his general ability to influence people. He knows that he's somewhat attractive and that he can speak somewhat eloquently. You know, he's a thin blonde man from London. You know, he's from the South. He is refined <laughs> and he can talk his way into and out of every situation. And I think you see this kind of archetype in a lot of media where this person, this smooth talking man thinks they can get into and out of whatever situation they want. And suddenly they find themselves with a gun in their face with somebody who doesn't want to take any shit from them and maybe doesn't fully understand what is being conned out of them, sure. but understands that they're being conned and isn't going to fucking take it. Oh, see, the, this is where I get infuriated because I do think that it plays as somewhat of a death wish. Uh, I, I mean, if he was the silver-tongued mastermind that could talk anyone out of it, then at what point... Did he think that that was no longer working or did he understand that that was no longer working? I mean, his last words are paraphrased. Uh, Your daughter's up shit creek without a paddle and that sucks because she's fat. That was his last line in this. So is he thinking like it's not just to me that he's looking down the barrel of a gun. The gun's loaded, cocked, and the person holding the gun is saying, I'm going to use this the next time you speak. And he still thinks maybe he has the balls or maybe he has the wit. But what he comes up with is your daughter's fucked and she's fat. Yes, he's charming. He's clearly intelligent. He's clearly charismatic. He's awkward with his insistence on being menacing, not creepy. And 
when he is at the end, he refuses to give up the antagonism that he is pursuing against Harry. This doesn't read to me like a person that thinks they have everything under control. It reads to me like a person that is trying to push someone beyond their limits, even if it costs them. I don't think that that's an inappropriate interpretation. I, I honestly believe that on some level, Mooney was willing to die in order to get his revenge. Yes, he had to be, right? Be- yeah. Because there were so many aspects of his death that could have been avoided by things completely out of control of any of the characters in the play. Sure, and if he had truly not wanted to die, and he's as smart as he thinks he is, he would have put in a failsafe. He would have yeah. had somebody who was going to show up at a certain time Shirley was sitting at a bus station for four hours. The first two, just because it was raining and she thought that Peter, Peter Mooney, was going to show up. And then the second two, just because she had waited that whole time. She walked in essentially immediately after he had been hanged and died, which was also an accident because the chair got taken away and the rope got stuck on, on the rafters. But if Shirley had decided, you know what, fuck this dude, I'm just going home, she would have walked in possibly before Mooney ever arrived back at the bar and he would still be alive. So I think the best interpretation is that he was a man who was willing to die but possibly still thought he would get out of it. Yeah, I think he was... I I think it's got to be true that he was willing to die for it but, but thought that he was smart enough and that he had set the dominoes up in just the right way that he would be revealed and that he would be able to see the look on Harry's face when he realized that he was about to kill a man for no good reason and And be so self-assured that he was exactly. Did Harry intend to kill Mooney? God, I really don't think so. I, it's, it's really tough to say because Harry strikes me as the kind of person who would be willing to hang a man. I mean, obviously he yeah. has. Well, but even even if it weren't ordered by the courts, is that this is this is his his muscle memory says, well, I can definitely kill this man. Yeah, and I definitely think he deserves it. And he had his special rope. Yeah, special craft brewed, <laughs> hand spun rope. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think we we know that Harry has the wherewithal to hang somebody, and I think that. He has a lot of reason to believe that Mooney deserves to be hanged. Yes. But there is a lot of in-scene, at least implication, that they aren't planning to do it yet. Yeah. That when the bang comes on the door and it's Pierre Pont, they try to cut him down, but the road stuff on the stuck on the rafters. And so they just hide him away. They say, okay, we'll deal with this later. So it's not like, okay, fuck it. We're not going to get anything from him. Hang him now. It's, wait, hide this. I'm not done with him. Yeah. And one of the things I think about is actually an early McDonough movie in Bruges. In where? In Bruges. In Bruges. Um, in which, sort of long story short, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson are stuck in Bruges sort of waiting for instructions from their boss after a botched crime. There's a point at which Brendan Gleeson's character has been given instructions to kill Colin Farrell's character. And as he's walking up on him, pulling a gun to shoot him in the head, Colin Farrell pulls his own gun and puts it to his own head, which causes Brendan Gleeson to stop him and be like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. And it's like the same sort of parallel here is like, well, yeah, I wanted you to die, but not in this way. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to die the way that I say, in the way that I feel comfortable with or appropriately responsible for or anything like that. Or, so that, have, or have been commanded to do, which yeah. is why this relates so heavily to Hangman. Yeah, so that's that's how I feel about it. But I mean, I think honestly, if if the scene plays out without the interruption, I... I think that Mooney survives because of how quickly Shirley comes back. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason. It's And this is why it's so infuriating to me that it was so intentionally ambiguous. I mean, yeah. I am... I have been fully taken in by the ambiguity and the unsettling nature of this play. And I've been annoying to you for the last few days, and I regret none of it. Um, That's fair. So I'd like to turn to... One of the weirdest parts of this play, one of the existing mysteries that does not get explained, and that's the friend that gets sent to the mental institution. Yeah, they talk about her very early in, like, the second scene, the the, the first full scene in the bar, and it's 
Inspector Fry talking to Alice about this woman that he just had to take up to the mental institution. Mm-hmm. Her name is Phyllis something or other. And he talks about her. Yeah, something or other is a weird last name. I That's don't know. very odd. But he's talking to her like that the reason she was taken in was that she couldn't see a license plate on a car driving by without reading it out loud. Mm-hmm. She had to walk down a stony street and either not step on the cracks or step on all the cracks. He couldn't remember which. If she was going around a lake, she had to go clockwise or was it anti-clockwise she had to keep the lake on her left yeah either way and she was sent to the mental institution for that and this woman happens to be shirley's friend and is sort of the impetus for her running away with mooney for a short amount of time right and so it makes sense from a plot point of giving her some place to go but i also felt like there is an interesting parallel there of this is the day that we have outlawed an abusive and brutal form of punishment. And in this time in the 1960s, how horrific it was to be put into a mental institution. The first thought that I had there was that this is McDonough drawing a line between practices that we see as brutal now and practices that we find acceptable now, Mm -hmm. but we will soon or eventually come to find to be, if not as brutal Similarly significantly brutal. brutal yes absolutely and and that's one of the overarching themes of this play is the contrast between the practices of the past and the moving into hopefully a more compassionate society I, in interviews mcdonough frequently references the 60s as the decade where the beatles were all over england and yet they were still hanging people so finding a national identity at a crossroads of how do we move towards a better society, but the brutality doesn't change. or the, the, the brutality doesn't cease to exist. It just moves into a different medium. Yeah, it just becomes slightly more acceptable. Absolutely. And it's probably less public to see a person being taken to an insane asylum than a public hanging or a public execution. But the brutalities right. is still there. I think the point is that we now perform our executions in private. <laughs> yeah, we're still torturing people, but in more acceptable ways. I mean, it's one thing if you make a pyramid of naked prisoners at Abu Ghraib. It's but another thing to take a picture of it. Absolutely. That's really what the problem is here. I do think that the character to talk about in this instance, though, is Officer Fry, who's the one who took Phyllis to the mental institution, and how his attitude of, of complete lack of comprehension of the struggles that Phyllis was going through to Shirley to Harry not wanting Shirley to find out because Shirley would get more mopey than she already is to the way that at the end of the play, officer Fry is trying to escape culpability for his part in the death of Mooney. I don't think McDonough is saying particularly positive things about the beat cop or the system that creates the beat cop. Yeah. I I don't think it's about the beat cop at all. I think that If you look at this play zoomed far enough out, what you're looking at is an absolute condemnation Mm. of the power structure that's given the privilege to destroy people's lives. Yeah. It goes from, you know, hanging people to just throwing them indefinitely into mental institutions with almost no regulation as to how they're treated. Of course It's not. just, it's one thing after the next showing that the people in power don't fucking deserve it. Absolutely. And then when you look at Mooney as an agent of trying to disrupt the comfort of the people in those entrenched positions of power, he almost becomes the hero. But also, like I texted you during our reading that he was 100% a serial killer cannibal. So it's hard to empathize with the sort of good person. And it's easier to empathize with the objectively bad person. Yeah, Well, and beyond that, it's hard to empathize with somebody like Mooney who goes out of their way Hmm. like any fucking troll nowadays to do everything they can to convince everybody around them that they are a piece of shit. Yeah. That when you find out at the end of the play, they they didn't actually do any of the shitty things that they directly claimed to have done. Yeah. 
you don't sympathize with that. You're like, well, why the fuck did you lie to me? Yeah. About all these shitty things that you clearly wanted to do. Right. Maybe Mooney hasn't strung Shirley up standing on a box of Weedabix, but he made us believe that he did. And if he's a troll, he's a troll that finally suffered some consequences. Exactly. And with that, I have one other small point that I think you had a pretty strong opinion on. So you just mentioned the box of Weedabix holding Shirley up. And I simply had the question, I wanted to know from you, what is the best breakfast cereal as a companion for hanging? Malta meal. First of all, a nice hot breakfast can really get you on the right foot in the morning. You know, sends you out the door energized and ready to go. I feel like in this scenario, you'd want to be on two feet. Well, yeah, but only for a while till the chair gets taken away. Yeah. Uh, Malta meal, being a very dense cereal, is going to hold its shape a lot, a lot more easily within the confines of that box. Now, I have known from personal experience that they actually make those boxes reinforced, so it's very strong cardboard. You could probably build an emergency shelter out of uh, Malta meal boxes. Um, but you know what? Every now and then, Malta meal gets a little bit boring. Uh, so Weedabix is good. It's just a little bland. Uh, you know, you got a little bit too much refined sugar. I wouldn't go with like Fruit Loops or Fruity Pebbles because really, who wants to say they died standing on a box of Fruity Pebbles? That's just ridiculous. What about Cinnamon Toast Crunch? Uh, I hear they have some secret ingredients. Uh, and, and those are wonderful. However, the secret ingredients, they're always talking about whether or not you can see them. Now, if you're trying to keep your head up straight, you can't really be looking down at your feet. So Cinnamon Toast Crunch is more of a distraction than anything else. Uh, I really, I, I'm really thinking Malta Meal, maybe some good granola, especially if you like puncture the bag and let it dry out and harden up. Uh, but, you know... If I were to get a wild hair up my ass, I would probably also go with, um, I was going to say Apple Jacks, but I don't know why. <laughs> hey, that's um, good enough for me. Uh, <laughs> so what I want everybody to know is that I have no idea what the fuck malted mules are, but they sound delicious. No, malto meal. No, malted mules. No, okay. That's, that's, uh. Fermented donkey. <laughs> Fermented Donkey will be opening for Malted Mule <laughs> at the Whiskey in two weeks. That was a lovely string you just put together right there. I'm very happy with that. Uh, Dylan, as always, it's a pleasure to be in a similar room. I to feel you. your pleasure. <laughs> Not yet, you don't. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. This has been Minutes to Curtain by Miss Grand Theater Collective. We will see you next time. Next time. Time is meeting. Minutes to Curtain is a project of the Miscreant Theater Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. This was written and produced by Dylan McDonald and Andy Rogers and directed by Aaron Slemak and sometimes Dylan McDonald. So, as you know, I like to go and seek out any other media for these shows, you know, if there's a movie or something like that. And so I went yeah. I went into Google and I searched for like any movie version or like live stage performance of Hangmen. Mm-hmm. Um and when I turned Safe Search off, I got a lot of hits for something called Hungmen. <laughs> and they did not stick to the script. <laughs>